Well, good morning. And uh, I don't know if I said this yet, but um, I've missed seeing you guys. It's good to be back. And uh, uh, greetings from Brevard. And I, I know I, I kind of said this a little bit earlier, but uh, I divide my time between here and Brevard. And Sunday mornings um, are, are spent there. Things are going well there. Um, but again, I'm glad uh, this morning I can be with you all. We're going through Galatians, and in Brevard, we're going through Galatians with you guys, same passages week by week, and so far, we've been looking at um, chapter one of this letter that Paul writes to a region called Galatia. I have a thing for maps, um, so just indulge me for a second, Um, and also apologies if you've already been shown this, but uh, Galatia is a Roman province right in the middle of what we now call Turkey. And there were churches planted in the southern region of Galatia. Um, Paul planted, and and he's writing this letter to them that's being circulated around all those churches because he's hearing things. He's hearing that there has been a... um, uh, a, a twisting of the gospel message. And chapter one, what we've looked at the past couple of weeks, is um, his response to a lot of personal attacks against him as an apostle. And he's, 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 he's saying, no, I'm an apostle of God, and the message that I proclaim is of God and not man. This morning we're moving into chapter two, where we see that Paul is once again, once again um, defending not himself so much this time, but really his message. Uh, what was happening is that people were moving into those churches, into that region, and they were discrediting Paul's message, but they were kind of doing it sneakily. Because they weren't saying that his message is wrong. They're not saying ignore the message you're hearing from Paul. What they're saying is part of it's true, but it's incomplete. Paul is leaving out some, some stuff that he should be telling you, and, and they're going around um, and, and adding to what Paul is saying. And so what we're going to be looking at is Paul's response to them, uh, his, 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 his response to the church, and he's saying, I haven't left anything out, nothing needs to be added to what I've told you. And we're going to be looking at that response through two different lenses. And the first lens uh, is this relationship between freedom and slavery, uh, and then freedom and slavery's um, effect on unity and division. So where there's freedom, there's unity. Where there's unity, there's freedom. But where there's slavery, division. Where there's division, there's slavery. And I'll explain all of that later, but that's sort of where we're going. Um, Enough of overview, if you would please stand, if you can, and I will read the passage. This is Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10, and then we will jump in. So hear now the reading of God's word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up again because of a revelation and set before them, these are apostles in Jerusalem, set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed to the Gentiles, among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you." 
And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential, adding nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me. (gasps) (sighs) Paul, right? Use a period, buddy. It's okay. Uh, for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, another name for Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Verse 10, only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Please pray with me. Uh, Spirit, we need you. Help us to... Uh, see what it is, hear and receive what it is that you have to say to us. We can't do that on our own. We need you. Um, help this truth uh, reflect itself in our lives as we leave this place and, and, and go on with our day. Um, thank you for the ability to gather together and study your word. May you be glorified in it. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can be seated. And... 1849, there was a man by the name of Henry Brown who did something that was rather extraordinary. He mailed himself to freedom. Henry Brown was a slave living in Virginia. With the help of some friends that he had in Richmond, he climbed into a wooden crate that was about three feet by three feet, and along with some water and a little bit of food, they nailed down the lid, painted on the top of it, handled with care, this end up, and mailed Henry Brown to Philadelphia, which, of course, in Pennsylvania, which was, a sli- which was a free state. But the journey of Henry Brown to Philadelphia included wagons, railroads, steamboats. It took 27 hours for him to arrive in Philadelphia. On more than one occasion, he was stored upside down on his journey. But there was a group of abolitionists, anti-slavery folks in Philadelphia, who received the package received Henry Brown, took the lid off, and uh, the story goes, he stepped out of the crate, and his first words were, how do you do, gentlemen? And he goes on to recite the 40th Psalm, which we read from earlier. And then Henry Brown began his life as a freed man. Here's the thing, though. The following year, 1850, Congress passed a law called the Fugitive Slave Act, that allowed runaway slaves, fugitive slaves like Henry Brown, uh, less security, and it was a greater likelihood of them being captured and returned to slavery. So knowing how easily he could fall back into slavery, he fled. For 20 years, he was fleeing this. He was first in England and then to Canada. Henry Brown was determined to never again be a slave, and he did everything in his power to remain free. Now, I'll recount this story to you guys, because first of all, it's a cool story. Secondly, it's a history story, and any chance I get to talk about history, I'm going to do it. But then thirdly, I think it does get us a little bit in the mind of what Paul's talking about in this passage. He's preaching the gospel of freedom. He's fighting to preserve that gospel message in the face of those who would seek to grab freed people and drag them back into slavery. Not a physical slavery, of course, but a spiritual slavery. How does he do this? Let's start in verses 1 and 2. He begins by describing how he went up to Jerusalem. 
After 14 years, most people say this is 14 years after his conversion, and he brings with him two guys, Barnabas and Titus. We'll talk about them in just a second. And he goes up to Jerusalem because of, of a revelation, and he, he doesn't give us any more detail about what form the revelation was in, but it doesn't really matter. God told him to go, so he went. He goes on in, in verse 2, and he sets before them the apostles in Jerusalem though privately before those who seemed influential, he sets before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. We need to stop for a second. Peter, let's kind of get back here. Peter had been commissioned to stay in Jerusalem for that time and preach the gospel to the Jews. That was his target group. Paul had been commissioned to travel around the Mediterranean region, planting churches, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, non-Jewish folks. And in the midst of this, people who were out to discredit Paul were going around saying that Paul, traveling around, and Peter in Jerusalem were preaching two different messages. They were kind of contradicting each other, and thus that statement, running in vain, um, kind of uh, uh, canceling out each other's messages. So Paul goes to Jerusalem to prove that his ministry to the Gentiles is not in vain, and in fact, it's totally in line with what the pillars of the faith were preaching. And the pillars of the faith at that time were James, Jesus' brother, Peter, and John. How do we know that they were preaching the same thing and that they came to this agreement? Verse 9, we read that they perceived the grace that had been given to Paul and gave him the right hand of fellowship. This expression, this gesture of unity. They were preaching the same thing. Quick side story, uh, some of you may remember what happened to me in November, I, I, had, I stood for my ordination exams. Um, this was at our Arden Prez, and some of you were there um, being examined uh, about the God, my understanding of the gospel message, and they were examining me, and at the end of it, when I passed, um, I did pass, uh, I had to stand down front, and all the ruling elders and all the teaching elders of the presbytery came down and shook my hand. They extended the right hand of fellowship to me. And then later, I came here. If you guys maybe remember that, the ordination service, same thing. There was an examination done, and then at the conclusion, this, this right hand of fellowship was extended. It might seem kind of silly or whatever, but it's, it's, it's taken from this, this extension of the right hand of fellowship, a gesture of unity, that we're preaching the same thing. Peter, Paul, preaching the same thing. What was it? that they were preaching. They were preaching that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone, not faith in Christ plus X, Y, or Z. And to show that it was the same message, Paul does something kind of cool. He brings along with him a case study. He brings along these two guys. One guy was a Jew named Barnabas. The other guy he brings with him is Titus, who was Greek. What does that have to do with anything? To get at what Paul is really up to, you need to understand, we need to think about a little bit more about what people were saying about Paul's message. There was a group, we've already alluded to them, a group, Paul calls them false brothers in verse 4 because they, they proclaim to be Christians, but he's saying they're false brothers who argued that the gospel of Christ was not complete without adding to it certain rules, certain laws from Moses, and you can go back in, in Exodus, you can go back to Leviticus, Deuteronomy, look at some of, these, some of these rules, some of these laws that they were trying to bring into the gospel, such as dietary restrictions, the keeping of certain Jewish holidays, festivals, 
um, sacrifices, and then, like in our passage this morning, circumcision. The practice of circumcision meant everything to the Jews. It was the sacred mark of Jewish identity. It was the symbol of salvation since the days of Abraham. It was a visible sign of belonging to God's people. We read from Genesis 17 just a little bit ago. And according to the command of God in Genesis 17, circumcision determined whether or not someone was inside or outside of the covenant. So what was happening is that there were folks going around merging adding from the Mosaic Law to the Gospel of Christ. And this group was saying, all right, you want to be a Christian? Have faith in Christ and be circumcised. Paul is saying, no, just faith in Christ. Here's Titus as an, exa- as an example. And everybody turns and looks at Titus. How is Titus an example? Uh, why is he an example? He's Greek. And Paul tells us he's Greek and he's uncircumcised. So Paul is using him to serve as the perfect test case for the freedom of the gospel. And he's saying that if you won't accept Titus into the fellowship of the believers because he's uncircumcised, you're not believing the gospel. You're not understanding the gospel. And the problem, I think if we were to get underneath all of this, we would see that these false brothers, were what they were really doing was turning a cultural distinctive into a theological necessity. A cultural distinctive into a theological necessity. They were taking something that made them culturally distinct, unique, and elevating it into a theological necessity. Turning it into something you had to do or be in order to be saved. Now, we also read a little bit ago from Matthew 5, and I would strongly encourage you guys to go back and read Matthew 5. It's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and begin at, at verse 17, Jesus says, I came not to abolish the law. Okay, so everything that God said in Genesis 17 and other places, I didn't come to abolish that. What did I come to do? Fulfill it. It still matters, but it's fulfilled. It's no longer something that you have to do in order to be within the covenant. I have taken care of that. That's what Jesus is saying. And so for these folks to go back and say, no, 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 you still have to go back and do some of these things. Jesus is saying, I've already taken care of that. Paul is saying, Jesus has already taken care of that. You're adding to the gospel of freedom. And really what you're doing is trying to take free people and draw them back into slavery. And in doing so, and this is when we move into the second point, They're sacrificing unity and causing division. Where there's slavery, there's division. How are they causing division? Let's look at it like this. Everyone comes to faith the same way. Our individual stories and experiences may be different, but we come to faith the same way. God is the mover. He is the one who acts. He is the one who convinces us of our sin. He's the one who enlightens our mind to even know Christ, renewing our wills, persuading us and enabling us to receive Christ as he's offered to us freely in the gospel. He's the one who acts, we're the ones who respond. And this is what unites us as a body of believers in Christ. But this is also our freedom. It's, 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 our, it's our, our unifying truth, but it's also our freedom because it's all him. It's not on us to create or maintain our salvation. I had that belief for a long time. I knew Jesus died for my sins, but in terms of salvation, that's up to me. 
what we're learning, what I had to learn and just pound it to my head is no, no, it's all Him. It's all Jesus. The division occurs when we add to the freedom that is the gospel, when we say, yeah, okay, Jesus died for me, but then you got to do this and this and this. And it's so subtle. And the things themselves that we feel that we have to do are not always wrong. They're not sinful, but it's the way we elevate them that's wrong. And there's so many examples, but let's talk about it. This may be a little awkward, but let's talk about it. What are some ways in which we take a, a cultural distinctive? Basically, how do we do what was happening in Galatia? How do we take a cultural distinctive and elevate it? And this is cultural distinctive of Grace Mills River. Because we have a culture, right? I was told once that every church is like its own country. It has its own culture, language, history, right? So how do we elevate a cultural distinctive of either Grace Mills River or Western North Carolina, the Southeast, the U.S., the West? How do we take these and elevate them? And when we elevate them, of course, causing division. Well, let's talk about some of these. Uh, dress code. Mm, already getting a little uncomfortable. Suit, tie, dress, heels, jeans, tucked or untucked, shorts, flip-flops. There's legalism on both sides, right? Whatever tradition you, you, you were raised in or whatever tradition is here, there's legalism on both sides. There's the opportunity to, to gain a sense of righteousness out of your dress code. That we have it figured out because we don't tuck in our shirts. I'm guilty of that. What about some other ones? Um, other obvious ones. Um, guitars, drums. Organs, hymns, praise and worship. Um, what about what about this one? Bible translations. Do any of you have Bible translation righteousness? Feeling just a tad superior because you are reading from a certain translation. This might not apply to you, and if not, that's good. But I, I, I struggle from that one that uh, I'm reading from this translation. What about denominational distinctives? We talk about cultural distinctives. What about de- denominational? <sighs> Let's go there. Um, predestination, free will. Is that a denominational distinctive that gets elevated? Baptism. Infant baptism versus believer's baptism. Juice or wine in communion. Intinction, where you dip the bread or do you take from a plate, tear off from a loaf? Who's going to make it to heaven based on those? Now, please understand I'm being tongue-in-cheek. I'm just trying to get some, some, some ideas of, of some of these distinctives that do get elevated. I have a friend of mine, good friend of mine, who is a Methodist minister in Hendersonville, and we have had some battles over Arminianism, free will versus Calvinism. And it's wonderful. And one day we're both going to get to heaven and we're going to laugh about it. He'll see I'm right 
But we'll laugh about it. Let's go back to Romans 10.9. This is one that uh, is always good to just go back to. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. If you confess, if you believe, you'll be saved. And what we do is then say, you'll be saved as long as you can recite the five points of Calvinism. As long as you do believer's baptism, infant baptism, or whatever. And we just, we just elevate it. Those are some big ones. And again, I'm kind of just I'm trying to get, get, get you guys thinking. Uh, but it can also be much more subtle than this. And, and I do encourage you to just to start looking around for it, looking around for it, but also looking within for it, uh, more importantly. Uh, because it is everywhere. Our attempts at classifying Christians, comparing ourselves with other believers. I do it, you do it, and it's hurtful. It's divisive and it's hurtful. First class Christians act this way. They dress this way. They believe these things. Yeah, they sin, but it's not really big stuff. They just, they struggle with some pride, maybe a little bit of gossip, maybe the occasional lust. Over here, you got the second class Christians. They're a little more questionable. Um, they dress a little weird. They untuck their shirts when they go to church. They definitely have some tattoos. I'm sure of it. Music they listen to is questionable. I can't imagine their sins. Thank goodness I'm not like them. This is what this is what was happening to the churches in Galatia. There was division. You say you're a Christian, but to be a real Christian, you have to be circumcised. You have to not eat pork. You have to keep these certain holidays. And to them and to us, where their own versions of that, Paul says, "Stop it! You're falling back into slavery." And what I'm about to say might sound like I'm contradicting myself. I'm not. But listen, because I want to be clear. Once you put your faith in Christ as your Savior, you are once and for all freed from the power of sin in your life. The presence of sin will remain, and it will until the day you die or until the day that Christ comes back. The presence will remain, but its power has been defeated. Because of Christ's perfect life, sacrificial death, resurrection, ascension, and the sending of the Spirit, His righteousness is credited to us. We are brought into the family of God. God no longer sees you as his enemy. God no longer sees you uh, as as a slave to sin. He's no longer mad at you. He's no longer disappointed in you. He sees you as his child. That's the good news of the gospel. And if you are here this morning and you don't quite believe that, you don't see Christ as your Savior, I'm just trying to think of what this is like for you right now. And imagine you parked your car, you're walking in through the parking lot, you're you're coming through the doors, and you're telling yourself, all right, I'm about to go hang out with some Christians. I need to make sure I don't rock the boat. I've got to make sure I don't say something stupid. Um, uh, I need to blend in. Because again, we have a culture and you want to fit into the culture. It's like that cafeteria line in middle school. You don't want to draw attention to yourself. And so I hope you're hearing me and what I'm saying, that really the only thing that matters is your response to Christ. 
And yes, if you do at some point come into a believing faith in him, you may notice some changes begin to occur in your life. You may change the way you see yourself, the world around you, but it all flows out of the understanding of how much Christ loves you. Paul was told in verse 10 to remember the poor, to provide for the poor. And what was his response? He was eager to do it. Why was Paul eager to remember the poor? He loved them. Now we've got to remember, and kind of getting under the text a little bit, when, when the apostles in Jerusalem told Paul to remember the poor, they're referring to the Christian church Christian church in Jerusalem. There was a famine going on, and maybe you've picked this up and actually talk about it, where Paul goes around, and there's a collection for the church in Jerusalem, and he remembers them. What's so amazing about that is that 14 years earlier, what was he doing to those same Christians? Persecuting them. He was affirming in their executions, and now he is eager to love them. He's eager to travel around the Mediterranean region, going from church to church, taking up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? The very people he was trying to kill, he's now providing for. How is that possible? That's the transformative power of the gospel. It compels us to get outside of ourselves and to love others. It compels us to live lives of holiness, lives of service, not to gain favor with God, but as a response to what's already been given to us in Christ. I mentioned earlier that Henry Brown, uh, this guy who mailed himself to freedom, was so afraid of being brought back into slavery that he fled the United States. But I think one could argue that he was still enslaved. He was still enslaved by the fear of returning to chains. In the same way, let us not be enslaved by the same fear that we will return once again to the enslavement of sin. That power has been broken by Christ's sacrifice once and for all. However, we forget this. We stop acting as children of God and begin acting as orphans trying to win God's favor by doing all these things to make them like us, to make them accept us. And then we compare ourselves to others saying, well, at least I'm not like that person or that person. And that leads to not only hurt feelings, but also division within the body. We forget that we're all a mess, all in desperate need of a savior. We forget that we're already, we're already accepted Jesus has taken care of that. And we need to be reminded of this, don't we? Constant reminding of who we are in Christ. I want to conclude with one final comment about Henry Brown. In the 1870s, slavery by now had been abolished, 13th Amendment. He comes back to the United States. Slavery has been abolished. He comes back. And he was something of a stage performer in his later years. It's actually a really interesting story if you want to read up on it. But wherever he went, he kept with him the box. The actual box. The one that delivered him to freedom. It was a reminder to him and to others of what he had been delivered from and the means by which he was 
liberated. We have something similar to that, don't we? In this meal. A visible, tangible reminder of what it took to deliver us out of the bondage of sin, of death, and be brought into life eternal, which was the sacrifice of Christ. I'd ask those who are helping serve communion to come on, come on down. This morning, through the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim that reminder. We proclaim the death of Christ. These elements that represent the body and the blood of Christ do not save us by partaking of them. We're not saved by this. But this is a seal to us of his promises. This is a reminder to us of his sacrifice. This is, this is something in which we are united through the Spirit, united as a body, and also united to our Father through his Spirit. But it's also a reminder of our need to be spiritually fed by Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we are to examine ourselves and our knowledge of Christ and our faith in him before we take of this meal. So I would encourage you to do so. Examine yourselves. Can I, with all integrity, say that I am resting in Christ alone for my salvation? If you can say yes to that, then this meal is for you. But if you're not quite there, I would ask that you refrain from it and you use this time to meditate on what you've heard, to think about it. And if you have any questions, to please come up and ask me or anyone else who's going to be down front after the service. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, starting at verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.